0: Good morning, would you uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 5, and while you're turning there, I I have to admit I'm a bit of a paradox standing up here this morning. Um, You'll never catch me in a coat and tie, ever, except when I preach. It's like my uniform, and so I, I feel kind of awkward this morning, but I was afraid if I showed up in a coat and tie that Eric would lead the charge to excommunicate me before I ever had the chance to apply for membership. So uh, I'm bowing to culture um, this morning. The other paradox is that in my profession, I live by PowerPoint. We can't hold a meeting or greet each other in the hall without a PowerPoint. However, when I preach, it's virtually never with PowerPoint. Uh, And that's because my notes are largely suggestions. And so if I stop advancing the slides this morning, it's because I've completely forgot and Just roll with it, um, and we'll all get through. Well, Mark chapter 5, we're going to read starting at verse 21 to the end of the chapter. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Well, we all have expectations, don't we, in life? You had expectations when you came this morning. We have expectations about what our afternoon will be like. We have, if you're a parent, you have expectations of how your children will grow and thrive and get along in life. But sometimes we can be disappointed by our own expectations if we set them a bit too high. Uh, I have a few illustrations of this. If you had lived through the last blizzards that we've had, you might have decided to go out and build a snowman, and they don't always turn out like you think they might. If you've ever picked up the phone and listened to that telemarketer who offers you the three free days in a beautiful Caribbean island, you'll know that it doesn't always meet the advertisements. Here's one that uh, affects me personally. If you've uh, had it, made a New Year's resolution this year to exercise at all, uh, I did not. However, I have been to my doctor this year, and uh, he has put me on an exercise program, and I submitted to a nutritionist to try to get on a healthier way of life. And so while I travel... I'm supposed to go down to the hotel and use the treadmill in this thing called a fitness room um, and do my 30 minutes of exercise. And I'm very proud of myself. I get up early in the morning and I go down and I have my shorts on and I have my water bottle and all the things you need, your sweat towel and your headphones, and you're ready to work out. And I'm very proud of myself until I get into these rooms and they were designed by a very cruel and twisted person. Because they're all mirrors. And so whatever expectations I have about my workout are clearly crushed uh, the entire 30 minutes I'm in this room. Well, we do set our expectations too high at times. Uh, But what we're going to see this morning is that two people encountered Jesus Christ. And what they came with were expectations that were far too low. And Jesus sets them much higher. You know, they thought their expectations were adequate that met their needs. And what we'll find is that Jesus sets them far higher. Well, let's situate ourselves in the book of Mark, just briefly in terms of an outline. Uh, Chapter 1, Jesus had declared that the kingdom of God was at hand. With his arrival, the kingdom had arrived, and he was preaching the gospel of the good news of that kingdom. In chapter 2, Jesus used some miracles and some healings uh, and encounters with the Pharisees to demonstrate his authority in that kingdom. He had authority over disease, over sin, and even over the religious order. Then at the end of chapter 3, Jesus teaches us who will be in the kingdom. There are insiders and there are outsiders. Those who are inside the kingdom are those who listen to his words and act on those words in faith. Then coming in chapter 4, Jesus used parables to teach us about the character of his kingdom. That kingdom is meant to be revealed his kingdom will grow and most importantly it'll grow based on god's authority and god's initiative and not on man's activity though he has given us his people the great privilege of participating in that growth then the end of chapter 4 and beginning of chapter 5 where we come to now jesus used a series of miracles to demonstrate his kingly authority or his absolute power within that kingdom his authority over nature his authority over the spirit world, and as we'll see today, authority over death itself. And the last of these miracles we look at, not only do they teach us about Jesus' authority, but also they have this theme where Jesus is going to set our expectations or what our expectations should be about our place within his kingdom. What's our position? What's our place in his kingdom? And I think what we'll see is that he will again set our expectations much higher than we ever would. And so we'll look at it, uh, this passage, and most uh, <clears throat> passages of Scripture do fall out nicely in three-point out, three outlines. So a cure sought, a cure expected, and a cure experienced. Well, first of all, a cure sought. As we come to verse 21, Jesus has just healed a man from demon possession. On the western side, or excuse me, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's now he was rejected in that region, and so he's traveled back to the eastern shore, and the crowds were waiting with him, waiting for him with great expectations. And as Jesus is in the midst of these crowds, two people approach him, and the two people on the surface are as different as night and day. The first we have an individual. Uh, first of all, he's male which in this society was extremely important. That put you up a notch in anybody's estimation. Second of all, he's named Jairus by name. Now, I will slip into Jairus probably throughout this sermon. My brain has been synced into Jairus for some reason all week. But it is Jairus. But the Apostle Peter, when he was recounting these events to his young protege Mark to have them written down, the man was important enough that he remembered him by name, which is not always the case in the Gospel accounts. He was a ruler of the synagogue, the scripture says. Ruler of the synagogue was a layman. Uh, you might consider him the president of the association. He was responsible for the care of the building, the preaching schedule, the teaching schedule, all of the things that related to the service. And he was also, as such, he would have been a man held in high esteem by his uh, fellow townsmen. He would have been wealthy, a man of means, a man of popularity. We know that he was a father, that he was a husband. He had servants, and he had material means at his his disposal. But what we also see about Jairus is that he was a man who was broken. man who was broken. He was desperate, and he was fearful. You see, the love of his life, this little girl, his little daughter, verse 23, calls him my little daughter. It's almost very tender. She was 12 years old, but to him, she was still his baby. And she was at the point of death. She was at death's door. And so these set of circumstances had really stripped Jairus of all of his pride as he came to Jesus. He was a wealthy man, and so he had probably already spent all that he could on physicians. He had tried everything possible. She wasn't getting better. She was only getting worse. And he fell at Jesus' feet, a man who he had probably held in contempt at one time. You remember, by this time, the Pharisees and the religious leaders didn't think much of Jesus, and they were at odds with him. And so coming to Jesus and falling at his feet and swallowing his pride and asking for help would have put Jairus in a very difficult religious position, an awkward position with his bosses. But nonetheless, he came, and he fell at Jesus' feet. And we, we know, we can kind of sense, if we're parents, what he was feeling. I've never had our son at death's door, although I have known parents who have struggled with those things, and I can't imagine what it's like. But even when they're sick, our children, it it just pulls your heart out. You want to do anything possible to make them well. Uh, We were uh, vacationing in um, Maine this year. Rob and I celebrated our 20th anniversary. So we did a childless vacation. And at at the end of the vacation, we got a call from his grandparents that Andrew had gotten poison ivy in his eye, and it was getting worse, and then they did the cruel thing by sending us a picture. Um, but a couple states away, as parents, even though was something wasn't life-threatening, ah, you just wanted to be there. You just wanted to put your arms around him. You just wanted to hug him and kind of just make it, go all, make it all go away. And, and so that's just some of what Jairus was experiencing this morning as he came to Christ, broken, fearful, and without his pride. Well, the other individual that came was almost the direct opposite. The writer just calls her a woman. It doesn't even remember her name. And so as a woman, she was a step lower in society. She was nameless. And the Bible says that she had a flow of blood for 12 years, probably a menstrual flow. And that had weakened her and weakened her and weakened her. Said she had suffered much under many physicians, and she had spent all that she had to try to get rid of this sickness, and she only grew worse. And you could see by the way she interacts with Jesus, she's she's fearful. Um, she doesn't want to be known. She wants to remain hidden. She kind of knows her place in society, and her place in society would have really been uh, a, a separate from everything and everyone that she loved. If she had a husband, she, he likely divorced her by now. She was alone. She was ceremonially unclean, according to Leviticus. And what that meant in that culture and in that religious order was that she couldn't participate in the temple worship. Uh, She couldn't even enter the temple. Anybody who even touched her was unclean. The, The furniture and the beds that she sat and laid on were considered unclean. And so she would have been ostracized by all that she loved. In verse 26, when it says that she suffered under many physicians... There were some very interesting remedies prescribed for this particular disorder. The Talmud, which is the rabbinic teaching of the day, lists quite a number of them. Some of which are, uh, if she were to carry a barley corn taken from the droppings of a white she donkey, it might do something to help her feel better. Or you could take some wine and you could boil Persian onions in the wine, And that was a prescribed remedy. Or this one I like the most. She could sit at a crossroads with a cup of wine in her right hand, and somebody would come up behind her and scare her. And that was a prescribed remedy for the day. So you, you can just imagine, you know, believing in these types of things and the desperation that she had lived, trying to be healed. And then she came to Jesus. She made every attempt to be unnoticed and anonymous in our account. She knew her place in society. But both of these individuals do share one thing in common. And that, that thing in common is that life's circumstances had driven them completely to the end of themselves. Past any human hope and into the arms of Jesus Christ, they turned to him with the expectations of healing. Well, that's a cure sought, a cure expected. What what expectations did they come with? What did they want out of Jesus? They both had an end result in mind. They both had in their mind the picture of what would be ideal for them. They both pictured what the best outcome would be. Jairus, in verse 23, asked Jesus, Come, lay your hands on my daughter, and she'll be made well. All he asked for was touch and heal. Touch and heal. That's all he asked for. In asking that, and in, in the way he, he, he acts through this, um, through this narrative, all he says is touch my daughter, heal her. Then I can go on with my life. I can see her marry. I can see her grow and have children of her own. Jesus can get back to his ministry. He can leave me alone, and I can leave him alone. It's a once and done deal. Those are my expectations for my encounter with Christ. And then we have the woman who has really the same expectations. Verse 28, she says, if only I touch his garments, I'll be made whole. I I don't even have to meet him. I don't even have to speak with him. If he just allows me to touch him and heal, that'll be enough. Then I'll I'll go about my business. I'll, I'll go back and I'll try to rebuild my broken life. That's all I want out of Jesus. The servants who came to Jairus to tell him that his daughter had died said it probably best. In verse 35, he said, trouble the teacher no longer. And I think those are the expectations that these two came with. Jesus, I need you. Touch me. Heal me, and I won't bother you any longer. You, you don't have to go out of your way anymore to help me. I won't bother you anymore. Well, I said that they had one thing in common, and they actually had two. When they came to Jesus Christ, they both came with a similar faith. Similar faith. Now, their faith was weak. It was certainly misinformed. The woman thought of Jesus more as a magic talisman. If I, I touch him, I'll be made whole. But but she had heard of what he did, and she had heard the stories, and she believed that he could do that. Their faith was small, weak, and misin- misinformed. Jairus had a weak and a crumbling faith. You know, he only came to Jesus as a last resort. But what we see Jesus say in verse 35 and verse 36 says this. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Can you imagine Jairus when he heard that? You know, I kind of I picture him almost collapsing uh, at the thought, I'm too late, I'm, I'm minutes or I'm hours away of having the teacher there to heal my daughter. But look how Jesus responds. Jesus, I, I picture him catching, G, catching Jairus as he's falling. The, Luke's account of this says that Jesus ignored what was said. He ignored the report. And he looks at Jesus, he looks at Jairus, and he stares him in the face, and he says, um, he says do not fear, but believe. Don't fear Jairus, believe. And in the Greek, that's more of a present continuous. What Jesus is saying is, you've already believed a little, You've already believed a little. Don't let it go. Keep on believing. You trusted me to heal. Trust me for resurrection. Just trust me. Just believe. But what was common about their faith and the reason it was real faith is because its object was Jesus Christ. Partial and misinformed, but its object was Jesus Christ. And that's what mattered. And so they've come to Jesus with these expectations. Um, And what we're going to see is a cure experience. What we're going to see is what Jesus does for them. And he changes their expectations and he changes our expectations. What they found in Jesus was something higher than they would have ever shot for. Two people came to Jesus for hope and healing. They both had the end result in mind, and Jesus is going to turn it on on its ear. Because, you see, this this isn't good enough for the king. It's not good enough for the king to be a once-and-done touch, a once-and-done relationship. Their desire for a cure was temporary. It was for this life. Jesus desired to make them whole for a relationship that would last for eternity. When we see in your NIV, you see the word healed. I want to be healed. He healed them. uh, In my translation, the ESV, it says made well. And in Greek, that same word is the word used for saved. It's the same word. And so when we say I've been saved, I've come to Jesus Christ for salvation, it's the same thing. And what it really means is to be made whole again. And that's Jesus' true desire not for healing, but to make them whole. And what did they find in Jesus that went above their expectations? What did they find? Well, they found five things. First of all, Jesus was willing. They did not find an unwilling Savior. Jairus pleaded, and Jesus came. The woman touched And Jesus immediately healed. There was no hesitation with Christ. Number two, Jesus sought them when they were willing to be left alone. He created relationship. When the woman, our text says, when the woman touched him and found that she was healed, she kind of slipped off into the crowd. She wanted to be unseen. She wanted to be unnoticed. But Jesus turns. Jesus turns and says, "No, I'm going to find you. I'm not going to let you get away." And he calls for her. He looks for her. He even doors the disciples. I, I think this has to be Peter, probably, responding to Jesus. Jesus turns around and says, and we remember this crowd is thousands and thousands of people all pressing around them. And in the middle of it all, it is kind of crazy to, to listen to. Jesus says, "Who touched me?" Well, Peter has to be the first one to respond. He just has to. And he turns around and says. Uh, hello, you're in a crowd. Everybody's touching you, but Jesus persists. Jesus is focused. I don't hear what the disciples say. I don't see the crowd around me. I don't feel their insignificant touches. I know the touch of faith, and I'm going to pursue this woman. And he calls her out to public view. He's not going to leave her alone. And with Jarius, the 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 the. Uh, Servants come, they give him the word, your child's dead, don't bother the teacher anymore. But Jesus persists, he's not going to let it go, he ignores them. He focuses just on the object of his attention, and that's this soul that he's about to change. So Jesus sought them when they were willing to be left alone. And then when they get to the house, uh, they get to the house of the ruler, and there's wailing and weeping. The professional whalers had already arrived. If you don't know uh, about this culture, they would actually hire professional whalers that would come to the house and and wail and carry on loudly over the deceased. And so it looks like they had already gotten there. And the first thing they do is laugh at Jesus because uh, Jairus had gone, had gotten Jesus, had brought him. And the first thing Jesus says is what? She's sleeping. To him, she was. Jesus wasn't lying to the one who has authority over death, to the one who will conquer death in a few short years, a few short months. She was just sleeping, but they laughed. And Jesus put them all out, and only his inner circle of three and the parents could come in and see what's about to be done. Jesus took charge, and he didn't leave them alone. Number three, Jesus was willing to become unclean for their sakes. You see, when she touched his garment, Jesus became ceremonially unclean. He would have had to gone and offer the proper sacrifices back at the temple to be clean again. When he arrives at Jairus' house, he goes into the, the room where this little daughter is laying, and the text says he took her by the hand. Now, he could have spoken. He would not have had to touch her. The declaration of his words were enough. But yet by touching her, he became unclean by touching a dead body. But he was willing to do that for her and for her father. Touching the hand of the dead girl made him unclean. Touching the hem of his garments made him unclean. Next, the master was intimate and loving and tender. See, this wasn't a business transaction. Jairus Jairus didn't have to offer him money. He didn't didn't have to just say, just do this one thing and I'll let you on your way. The the woman didn't have to just slink away and, and, and be fearful of Jesus' touch, be fearful of his voice, be fearful of his eyes. What they found is he was intimate, loving, and tender. Remember, the woman was nameless. She had no name in the record. But what does he call her? When he reaches out to her, He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. He names the nameless. And what did he do to the little girl? In verse 41, he says, he took her by the hand. He said to her, talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. That's a very tender term. It was like Jesus saying, little lamb, I care about you. I love you. You're important to me. You're not insignificant in this big, ugly world. That's the Savior that they found. And so they could have expectations for intimacy, love, and tenderness. And then even practically speaking, it wraps up the narrative with Jesus saying, give her something to eat. She'd been sick. She was 12 years old. She was up hopping around. She was probably weak. But he notices all the little details and reminds them to give her something to eat. Well, then lastly, Jesus went far above healing. They came for a touch and go. They came for a once and done. Jerry's, Jerry's wanted healing, there I go. Jairus wanted healing, and he experienced resurrection. How awesome was that? Temporary resurrection. She would die again one day as the natural course goes. But for Jairus, who was expecting A living, breathing little girl to just stand up and feel better. Watched his daughter come back from the dead. How awesome was that? How awesome was that? See, Jesus could have healed her. He he could have had her wait. He could have kept her from dying. But he wanted more for her. He wanted more for his disciples. And he wanted more for this leader of the synagogue. And the woman... What did she receive? Much more than the physical healing. She received love and tenderness. Who knows the last time this poor woman received love and tenderness from anybody? Twelve years, ceremonially unclean. And then in verse 4, Jesus says, go in peace. Peace with God. Be healed of your disease according to Levitical law, after she had been healed of her condition, she would have been required to go back to the temple and offer sacrifices and prove to the priest that she was once again clean. We never see Jesus telling her to do that, do we? By his word alone, by his declaration of peace, she was made clean. And then he brought her out into public. He didn't do this quietly. Remember, this is a crowd of thousands and thousands of people. And this woman who was unseen by society, he brings out into public view. He calls her out. He calls her daughter. And he declares publicly for all to see exactly what he's done for her. See, he gave her dignity. He gave her honor in the midst of all these people. And in essence, he made her whole, far above her own expectations, far above. Well, what do we do with this in our 21st century lives? We have our, all have our own experta- expectations. We've come here this morning with expectations of church, expectations of fellowship, expectations that I won't run over time. By the way, I never pay attention to the clock, but I'm trying. We all have expectations about this person we call Jesus Christ. There's not a single person on this earth who doesn't know that name in some way, shape, or form. And everybody has expectations about him. We all have expectations about this thing we call the Christian life, this thing we call Christianity. And what this text and what this king, what this rabbi says to us is that whatever your expectations are, they're too low. I want you to set them higher because I have much more for you than you could ever hope or imagine. First, to those who are in Christ, just because we're in a church, we don't assume that everybody has experienced that saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so to those who are in Christ this morning, to those who have come to him for healing of sin, for forgiveness, and are that rela- experiencing that relationship today, we should ask ourselves, is, are our expectations for that relationship just once and done? Were they fire insurance? We got saved so that we would get out of hell, and that's it. You know, does Jesus just leave us to ourselves? after we've experienced conversion. We may have those expectations, and we may not all have them all the time. Maybe sometimes at low points in our lives, when we feel like he's not looking, when he feels like he's not caring, when we may feel like life circumstances are just getting the best of us. Maybe we can slip into that, well, I was saved, I just have to wait till heaven. And what Jesus says in so many ways, and this is I was so frustrated by the application portion of this sermon because really what this launches into is an entire new preaching series. You know, if we were to look at all that Christ wants for his people, all that he desires, all of the promises contained in the Old and New Testament for his people, not only for the new heavens and new earth, but also for this life, we'd be at it for months, years. But what does Jesus say in John chapter 10? He's talking about his people. He's talking about his sheep. He says very simply, I came that my sheep may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Jesus doesn't settle for a life of relationship with us that's second class, that's second best. He wants us to have an abundant life with him, not only in this life, but the one to come. And then he goes on to say through the Apostle Peter, he says, you are not an insignificant person in my scheme of things. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. He says, I don't look at you as somebody that I've had to rescue. Now I don't want to be bothered with anymore. And through the Apostle Peter, he says, no, this is, what I, this is how I see my people. My people are a chosen race. I chose them for myself. They are a royal priesthood king, princes, and princesses in the kingdom of heaven. We're a holy nation. We are separate, set apart just for him. And then he says, you're a people for my own possession. Don't ever think that you're a second-class citizen in the kingdom of heaven because one of those citizens doesn't exist. Just doesn't exist. Well, another trap we can fall into with low expectations is health and wealth. You know, maybe we come to Jesus and maybe we have expectations about what this life should be like. Well, I came and I repented and I did my Christian thing and I did what was asked of me, but I have problems. I'm having difficulties at work. I'm having difficulties at home. I'm having difficulties with relationship. Well, let's think about the woman who was healed the woman who was made whole, who was given so much. You know, when she left Jesus that day, she was still poor. She still didn't have a husband. Jesus had not immediately changed all of her circumstances. And so those are not expectations that we have for this life, that he will make everything completely 100% right in this life. But once again, Jesus sets the bar much higher and he says, I have higher expectations for what you experience because I can see the beginning from the end. I know what I want you to be. I know what I've created you to be. I know what I'm molding you and forming you into. And I'm using those circumstances in your life to achieve that goal even when you can't see it. And he says through James, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, I don't want to minimize the pains of this life, they're real. We hurt, we experience loss. It's not something that we just say, ah. we shouldn't let it bother us. That is not the human condition. Jesus suffered right along with us. He knows what it's like. So I don't want to minimize those pains and those trials. But as Christians, our expectations don't have to be grin and bear it till heaven. Our expectations are whether I see it or not, what Jesus Christ is doing in my life is conforming me to the image of himself. And At the end of this, I can look back in 2020 hindsight and I can say, wow, what's he done? I understand so much more about grace. I understand so much more about his love now. I understand so much more about his mercy. His expectations are much higher than we'd ever set. And so I'd encourage you to use scripture, use your prayer lives, Use your eyes to look backwards and see what he's done. Just park those expectations a little higher and a little higher and a little higher and experience the joy in the Christian life. Well, I can't end without uh, saying something to those who have not been made whole. There are those here, likely, who have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, who have not come to him for forgiveness, for healing. You see what he's done in the lives of two people. And all I can say about this is this this is the same Jesus who comes to us in Matthew. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. I know what you're going through. There are no second-class citizens. There's nobody too lowly. There's nobody unimportant that I won't address. And then he himself says in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You know, there's the promise. And we struggle with this thing called predestination. It's really, that shouldn't be a struggle. Jesus chose people before the foundation of the world. Yes, we don't understand that. But what does he also say? Whoever comes to me, I will cast out no one. That's the promise to hold on to. And so I would encourage you, if you haven't thought about your own spiritual condition this morning, What are your expectations for Christ? Are they, I'm a good person. He'll let me in in the end. Are they, I'll get around to it sometime. He'll be patient with me. I'm not going to die anytime soon. These are all things that we don't have the luxury of. Because he says today, today is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning you have humbled your preacher before your people because I have no words to say in and of myself. Yet I pray that the Holy Spirit was alive and active within the hearts of your people. I pray, Lord, this morning that in some way differently today we can walk out of here setting our sights higher on Jesus Christ, setting our sights where you would set them, You want so much for your people. You want to purge us of sin. You want to sanctify us by your grace. You want us to grow in grace. You want us to be more patient. You want us to be more loving. You want us to engage in fellowship with your people in meaningful ways. These are all things you want for us. And then you turn around and you give us the power through the Holy Spirit to accomplish those things. And so I pray that that would be true of your church this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself. In your word, it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.